The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer. Welcome. Today, we are talking about commercial water bottling and protecting the Columbia River Basin. So my guest today is Deanna Bushdiker of Cascade Locks, Oregon, and they are under assault for uh, huge amounts of water bottling. Uh, it's not, the concept ain't bad, but what the volume that they're talking about does not portend well for the Columbia or uh, the people living along it or the wildlife. Uh, hello, Deanna. Hi, Rob. Did I get your last name okay? Boosticker, it actually is, but that's okay. People have been pronouncing my name wrong my entire life. <laughs> well, I, I want to get it right on the radio, so tell us again, who, you. who are you? I'm Deanna Boosticker. Um, I am a city council member in Cascade Locks, Oregon, and what I'll be talking about today, um, I'm not speaking on behalf of the city or any members of council, um, these are my own uh, opinions and, and those of the people I represent in town. Um, I've lived in the gorge for about 20 years, and I've been in Cascade Locks for nine of those. Um, I mm. studied environmental science or ecology at, at Merrillhurst University with, with Larry Hansen, who uh, was one of the foremost uh, mountain ecologists in, in the Cascades, and um, my degree is actually in interdisciplinary studies, and, and that helps me understand this whole project a lot better. Oh, yes, but tell us what you like doing with Larry Hansen. Did he take so, up in the mountains and measure stuff, or what? Larry Hansen... Um, he, he, boy, it's, it's really hard to even put into words, you know, the influence he had. Um, he was the one that, that taught us how to, to look for patterns and, and systems and things like that and, and really brought home how, how everything is connected. And um, we, we did, our, our big field trip was actually on Mount Rainier. And we wow. spent a week there um, just, you know, going on hikes and, and studying the, the different uh, land formations and, and just seeing how, you know, it all fits together. <laughs> so we don't have it like you guys have it. I'm up here in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and we don't have year-round, you know, 
Is it glacial snow that's on Mount Rainier, or is it all it's white, though? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, Mount Rainier from... isn't really part of... Well, it's part of the Columbia River watershed. Yeah. But, but that's... It, it, it's less a part of, of our ecology system here um, than right. as Mount Hood. Mount Hood is, is our local mountain that, that influences us and, and we live with. And it's always white, too, right? Pardon? And Mount Hood is always white on top. Not anymore. Um, uh-huh. I, went to, I went to a lot of drought presentations last year. Um, trying to figure out, you know, what what was going on, and the scientists who actually study this, you know, have said that it's going to get worse before it gets better, and and the the glaciers on Mount Hood are receding at about a hundred yards a year, I think, yes. and the the glacier specialist that gave the presentation said if it continues at that rate, there will be no more permanent snow on Mount Hood um, within 20 years. Oh, my goodness. So um, can we say the word climate change, global warming? <laughs> yes, exactly. You know, the, the, the temperature itself has, has just been so, so different. You know, this year... We had temperatures in April almost 90 degrees. And in my 20 years in the gorge, that has never happened before. That's, that's terrible. Yeah. Well, the Columbia River is quite the river. Um, tell us a little bit about the Columbia. Well, the Columbia River, um, I believe the watershed uh, covers portions of five states and, and two Canadian provinces, so it's, it's pretty big. It's, it's one of the largest uh, watersheds in the country. And the Columbia River itself is one of the most endangered rivers in the country as well. Um, the pollution is just horrible, you know. We've got everything from uh, the, the people dumping raw industrial sludge um, directly right. into the river untreated. That happened up until like 1996 in Canada. And so yeah. all of that was going directly into the river. We, of course, have um, all the orchards and, and agricultural that, that we get the pesticide runoff. Um, there's Hanford, so we've got the, the nuclear leaks. Oh, that's um, right, Hanford, big nuclear power plant. Yikes. Yes. Yes, and that's yeah. a mess. That's a, that we could probably spend a whole episode on that alone. Yeah, no, we're not going to do that. But, uh, <laughs> right, right. And then it's so, you know, that, salmon, or what are the salmon you have running up at the Columbia? Oh, there's all kinds. Okay. There's um, the Columbia is mostly Chinook and and coho. Oh yeah, coho, great. And um, yep. those those runs were were particularly endangered last year. Um, they were saying that 60 to 70 percent of the sockeye run didn't make it to Idaho from the Bonneville Dam because you know they they count the fish as they cross as they pass the dam. Yes. So you what know, and that was because of the temperatures. Um, salmon are very very susceptible to temperature changes, 
And if the water gets above 70 degrees, they start dying. Right, they're and, cold stream animals. Pardon? They are cold stream animals. Yes, they yes, need cold they are. Water. They, they desperately need the cold water. And that's one of the things that is, is so important here where we live um, because the, we have native fishing people. You know, they've been fishing mm. this area for probably 10,000 years. And, yeah, and they depend on that. And they really they need depend it on it. You know, that's, that's almost the basis of their whole culture is, is the salmon. And the tribes have treaties on, on the water, too. So, you know, they, they should be having a say in what happens to it as well. Absolutely. And you said that you had the good fortune to uh, go to a log house celebration with Longhouse. A tribal group? Yes, a couple weeks ago, um, the Wanapum fishing people, which are the, the local natives who, who fish uh, in our area, they had a, a longhouse celebration at Salilo, which is the, the village. Salilo Falls was a very, very important native fishing site, and um, it was inundated when they built the Dalles Dam. So it's no yeah. longer there, um, but oh, they have, and, and so, you know, Salilo itself is a, a very symbolic place, and the natives came, uh, invited all the, the water warriors, we call ourselves, um, to, to basically say thank you for, for helping them try and protect their water and their fish. That's wonderful. And what are the beads you're wearing now in memory of, in celebration of that? Oh, well, you know, they, they gave us some jewelry. There's a little, uh, there's a little hand-woven basket necklace and, you know, a couple other necklaces and, and a headscarf. And I, I put those on today to, to give me some inspiration as, as I talk to you. <laughs> Bravo. Well, I want to thank you for visiting the Ocean River Institute on our site on Facebook uh, because uh, you posted or people posted and directed us, connected us, you know, about what, what's happening in, um, you know, there in Cascade Lakes, Oregon. And Cascade I, Locks. You know, Cascade Locks. I'm sorry, but I understand that Nestle Water Bottling has proposed something for Cascade Locks. Yes. And they um, first proposed it back in 2008. So yes, tell yes, us that story. Um, back in 2008, um, our city administrator at the time uh, came to us with a, a Nestle proposal. They would like to bottle our, our spring water and, and put it into their Arrowhead brand. And, but the problem is, is that the spring water they want to bottle belongs to the fish hatchery. So we have to do a water exchange with the state so that we can have access to the spring water in order to sell it to Nestle. And then the plan is for the, the fish to be raised in, in city well water instead. Oh. So... That's kind of strange. Well, yeah, you know, and 
that's that's sort of precedent setting in itself because you know the we're we're actually Oregon um, owns all the water in the state. The water belongs to the state, and they confer the rights. So, um, you know, the the city says that you know we have these rights and we can sell them, and and that should be that. But it's not just about money, you know. It's about the fish in the water and and deciding what's really important. Yes, absolutely. And um, so, you know, this has been going back and forth since 2008. I got um, elected to city council. I was appointed in 2013, and then I was elected to my seat in 2014. Um, I'm, I'm on council through 2018, and last year, um, the the city and the Oregon um, Department of Fish and Wildlife decided to change the water transfer application. Well, oh, I get these confused. There's an exchange and a transfer. We had the exchange first, and then we switched to the water transfer, which is a different process. Um, doesn't require a public interest review, mm. well, and and that was the the sticking point was that they were trying to just you know do it without you know any input from the public, and and that was what got people riled up last year. Mm. It's what got me riled up. You know, I I came out and said, you know, this is. You know, this is wrong. I wrote a letter to the editor in the Hood River News, and things kind of just snowballed from there. You know, all these people came out of the woodwork to help uh, support me, and we we formed a, a new Oregon nonprofit organization by summer, and then by fall we had our our ballot measure um, submitted and and put our signatures to it, and now it's going to be voted on this month. Oh, my goodness. Well, right. We're going to come to the ballot in a minute. Um, Okay. Tell us a little bit about um, they're going to be tapping the water from the fish hatchery. You have a local hatchery right there, right? We have several local hatcheries. hatcheries. Um, This is just one. And the ox. It's the Oxbow Hatchery, which is where we'll be getting the, the spring water from if, if this goes through. And, yes, the hatchery, um, they, they do three different uh, recovery programs, and, and none of them are actually our local fish. So, you know, it's, it's good to help the fish, and I don't think the fish are going to be any worse off if we don't have Nestle here. But, no, not definitely, but you do want the hatchery there. Right, right, right? yeah, the but the, the arguments that they use, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not our fish. Um, the Oxbow Hatchery, uh, one of their programs, um, they send fish to Red Lake, Idaho, um, an endangered mm. species, and then the rest of them are, are pretty much all uh, just fish that get dumped downstream for sport fishermen. Oh, that's great. But you're actually supporting an endangered species of, of salmon? 
yeah. like endemic to Red Lake or something. Yes, yes. Wow, that's cool. So, you know, that's that's really cool. And, and I'm still trying to figure out how an, an even exchange of water is going to give them more water, but... No, I haven't figured that out yet. <laughs> They're just being responsible, keeping sufficient water on the fish, or so they say. Right, right, right. Um, and and Oxbow Spring too. It, it turns out is a, a sacred ritual area, and the water is sacred to the local tribes. And we didn't know that. Um, the natives, you know, they don't practice their religion openly. It's it's very private. And until last summer when they started getting involved, you know, we had no idea that that was a a sacred water for them. And with their tribes, um, Treaty of 1855 is the one that applies to to our local area. And, And it says that, you know, they should have a say in what happens to the water and the fish. And, you know, the, the city and the port never contacted them. You no. know, they, they didn't get any Native input on this no. for, for almost seven years. Um, when the Natives, you know, started joining our rallies last summer, um, all of a sudden, you know, the city and port are like, oh, we really want to talk to you. And oh, yeah, that's good. Uh, and you know they have—it's like they have no idea how insincere that sounds. You know, oh, we ignored you from seven for seven years, but we really want to talk to you. Well, government does that because it's a separate government, a tribal group, and so it's—it's it's almost not in the government purview to talk to Native Americans. It's an old, well, bad but with their treaty, it should be. Well, you have to be respectful of of who talks to who and all. And, and well, both. yeah. Oh, of uh, course. It's, it's, I understand that completely. It has to be, yeah. But um, seven years? Yeah. Well, it's great that, you know, squeaky wheels get, get grease, as you know. Yes, so exactly. Bravo, and that's have, what happened. Visibility. Yeah. You know, it was, it was actually kind of discouraging until the natives started getting involved, and they really energized the, the group and, you know, like I said, they have a treaty, and, and if that water is part of their sacred rituals, then as far as I'm concerned, that should have shut the whole thing down immediately. Yeah. And it might, but it, those things have to go through the court system, which exactly. can, can destroy the resource before it's gone through the system. Exactly. Is, Everybody's kind know. of waiting right now to see what happens with the ballot measure before anything else really moves forward. Can the Native Americans vote on the ballot measure? If they live in Hood River County. Yeah, that's great. So, Um, yeah, yeah, it is, you know. And and the thing that's so important to remember about the tribes, too, you know, it's been really inspiring to, to have, you know, basically white people and Natives, you know, working together for something so important. And, you know, we're all trying to protect the water, but the Natives are also, you know, they're trying to save their entire culture and their entire existence. So, you know, it's, it's even more of, of a personal issue to them than it is to us. 
Well said. We are talking about big commercial water bottling threatening the Columbia River Basin, especially at Cascade Locks, Oregon. And we'll be right back after this short break. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. On a Cape Cod shore, 16 striped bass fish and a horseshoe crab were found dead, killed by a harmful algal bloom. The town blamed excessive lawn fertilizer for polluting the water. They restricted lawn fertilizing to once a year. The state overruled, mandating five times a year. Though the striped bass died on a Falmouth shore, fertilizer pollution is a national problem, clogging our waterways. If you believe in our rights to clean water and beaches, if you want to stop the killing of fish by excessive fertilizer, please join with us. Make a donation for responsible stewardship. Acting together, we can have clean beaches and more fish. Please visit www.donateforocean.com. That is www.donate, the number four, oceans.org. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. Again, that's 1-866-472-5788. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi. We're talking about commercial water bottling coming to Cascade Locks, Oregon, and protecting the Columbia River Basin uh, with Diana. Okay, Diana, how do you say your last name? Boosticker. Boosticker. And um, so we've got Nestle coming into town there. Where do they plan to stick those pumps of theirs? Well, the city, we are in a, 
uh, national scenic area, actually, the Columbia River Gorge. And so mm. there are a lot of rules about what you can and can't do. Um, but there's two different management zones. There's an urban management zone and there's a rural management zone. And the urban management zones, of course, have a, a little more lenient rules. So, of course, you know, Nestle is putting their pump 18 inches inside the urban management zone to avoid the, the more strict rules in, in the urban management zone. I think it's like 18 inches and is, is, it might be easier for the trucks to get in there too. Well, what what happens? To the, uh, well, no, no, do? it's going to be it's going to be uh, a pipe that and goes pipe directly go to, to their their water bottling plant. Ah. Um, the tanker trucks will actually come from other areas, and that's one thing that people don't talk about very much here. You know, it's not just about the water in Oxbow Springs, you know, that's just the spring water they want. Um, oh, and so that's like 10% and they can say that's the, they can say it's all that or something. They you know, they, they, you know, they, they just, you know, talk about the spring water, but they're going to have both the Arrowhead and Pure Life um, lines. And the Pure Life is, is like the lower quality and they'll be basically bottling our well water. You know, it, it'll be municipal water. Yeah. Municipal and water. Um, so, you know, it's not just about Oxbow Springs. They'll be taking our, our well water, too, and we're in the process of, of rebuilding our, our water system, and there's going to be a new well on the west side of town, and I believe they're going to be wanting water from that, too. And that's just in town. Um, you know, Nestle and any, any commercial water bottler, actually, you know, I hate to say it's just Nestle because it's not. No, it's um, a volume thing, yeah. Yeah, you know, they're, they're not going to be satisfied with, with just what they get from our town. You know, they're going to make contracts with, with other property owners who have water rights, and then we will be getting the big tanker trucks coming in. And that's what makes it not just about Cascade Locks because, mm -hmm. you know, you, you can't just assume that they're not going to be trucking water in from other places because their whole, you know, their whole existence is about making more money. So well, they're always going to be trying to find more water to bottle. Yep. And so it does affect, you know, not even just the county, but the whole watershed. You know, that's, that's the main reason for the ballot measure that, that has been proposed. Well, yeah, it makes sense because the company, in order to show a 10% or whatever profit they want to show a year, means they have to bring in or they have to bottle 10% more water or whatever right. the profit margin is. So it's literally an enormously sucking-sounding, you know, business that's just sucking up the water from, you know, all around. It's like you exactly. sound you hear when you pull the, the drain plug out, you know, and the water's going down. You know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, in order to turn a profit, they have to suck in more water than they did last year. And, uh, yeah. That's, and, um, uh, you know, another important thing to consider is the fact that there are no comprehensive maps of the groundwater and Mount, and Mount Hood and, and our area. 
So we don't really know where the water comes from because the hydrogeology report only studied from the Columbia River to where the the pump will be, which is like 3,000 feet, I think. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we don't know where the water exactly originates. And without that kind of information, you can't really make an informed decision about how much is actually there. Right. Until it's all gone. when they say we have plenty of water, sorry. Yeah, that's right. Go ahead. Yeah, so... They say we have plenty of water, but... They say we have plenty of water, but we don't know what's going on underneath all the rocks and stuff, and and the, the, the aquifers could be connected in places that we don't realize. They already discovered that a large part, portion of the water that comes into the Oxbow Herman Creek system um, is from an entirely different creek, mm. um, Dry Creek, which is an, a, another one. They kind of all come together. But we didn't realize that we were getting, you know, a large amount of uh, water from the the Dry Creek Aquifer in addition to the the Herman Creek Aquifer. So, I mean, that alone, you know, they were surprised by that. And like I said, there is no comprehensive mapping of the underground water on Mount Hood. No, and this is the whole problem is that, you know, they don't know it's gone until it's gone, and then suddenly the whole municipality has no water in the ground, and Nestle can just go trucking somewhere else, but you guys are left high and dry. Yeah, exactly. And that's, you know, and with the drought, you know, the entire state essentially was in a severe drought last year. It's gotten worse and worse over the last five years. And like I mentioned before, the scientists who study this say it's going to get worse before it gets better. And I've already seen this year, you know, things happen that have never happened in 20 years. Exactly. So things are changing. And and just, I mean, just in the, the eight years since they presented the proposal, things have changed a lot. And, you know, we really need to revisit if this is actually the right thing to do. Well, it's not until you have a good ballot measure before, you know, that's coming up to vote on May 17th. And if it's passed, then Nestle won't be doing business. Nestle won't be doing business or any other large commercial water bottler. Um, And why is that? There are two components, you said, yeah. There's two components to the ballot measure. Um, the first component is that um, anyone who does commercial bottle, bottling of water is only allowed to bottle 1,000 gallons a day. And the second portion of, of the ballot measure says that any water that is bottled is not allowed to be exported out of the county. And how so do they get that 1,000 you know, gallons? It limits the, the amount of water. If yeah. some small local company, you know, wanted to, you know, bottle water for like a hotel or something, you know, have like a, you know, a little mini brand, they could do that. Right. Oh, that's you know, great. If yeah. there was an emergency, 
you know, we could we could send water to other people. Um, you know, that 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 won't stop that. Um, right. So, Isn't you that know, great? So, and we have so, so uh, yeah. We have really good lawyers working with us and they actually just they had the um the anti-GMO bill in another county in Oregon, and that passed and held up in court. So I have a lot of confidence in our lawyers that, that this, oh, yeah. once it passes, will hold up in court. That's great. They wrote a good law that's going to help you out. And where can and people go to learn more about it? Pardon? Where can people go to learn more about um, protecting the Columbia River by stopping Nestle and Cascade Locks. Well, in particular for stopping Nestle, um, there's we we formed an organization last year. It's the Local Water Alliance, and our website is localwateralliance.org. Um, I don't necessarily speak for them either, but I do support them in full, and. Um, you can go there and you can find out information about the ballot measure and, and Nestle and water bottling. And if you want to make a donation to help us uh, fight this, then you can do that there too. Because oh, the, uh, yeah. the, the, the pro Nestle people just got donations to their uh, super PAC. Um, Forty thousand dollars, five thousand from the the Northwest Water Bottling Association, and thirty five thousand from the International Water Bottling Association. So they that just was... got some really big checks, and and we need to pay lawyers and stuff. So if anyone can help, it would be great. <laughs> What's the website again? Local Water Alliance. Dot org, and I also Local. have, I also have a, a public Facebook page, uh, Deanna Boosticker, Cascade Locks, Oregon, and that also contains a lot of facts. It contains the full text of the ballot measure, and and several notes on my personal thoughts and and statements and debunking some of their claims. It's a great website. I'm looking at it, and it's how we got connected. Yeah. It's true. You've got the entire um, bill amendment, a bill up there of people to read, you know. And, and the it's, easy. For it's anyone only two and, pages. It's not like it's right. the TPP. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's anyone in the Hood River County can vote yes. on this bill. It isn't just you, Cascade Lock. It's a if county If you live bill. in Hood River County, vote yes on 1455 and Make sure you get your ballot in by May 17th, because Oregon is a mail-in ballot state. That's, yes, yes, it's really important. So we're going to try to get this radio show together as a podcast that people can spread out as well. Because um, yes. we want to get the word out for people to join with you, especially and if you know anybody in Hood River County, urge them to uh, vote. And you have absentee voting, right? So they can just call for a ballot right now, or how does that work? Um, the ballots get mailed out automatically to everyone who's registered. And we also just started the motor voter registration, so everyone in Oregon is registered to vote. Well, that's great. So look for the ballot and listen to Deanna on how to vote. 
which is boat. Yes, uh, which, fourteen fifty-five. The bill number is fourteen fifty-five, and um, thank you, yes. Deanna, for taking all this time to explain to us the importance of protecting our watersheds. Oh, uh, we no don't have problem. time to talk about other places, but. So many other places. You mentioned Freiburg, Maine earlier. Yes. Nesca's already dug in there so that they, they're in a much worse pickle than you are. Yeah. So this is a real turning point for Cascade Locks yes. is to you know, prevent the Nestle people from getting their foot in the door. Right, um, now exactly. Now it's time to come out and act. Yeah. And that's the one thing that we have going for us is the fact that Nestle doesn't already have their pumps in the ground. Because once they start pumping, you know, if something goes yeah. wrong, they try to make them stop, they sue. Right. They sue over and over again until they win. And meanwhile, they're pumping away like crazy. And meanwhile, right. they're pumping away the entire time. Yep. So, you know, we, we, can't, we can't let anybody, it's not just Nestle, you know, we no, can't let anybody big. remove that much water from the watershed. You know, some people right. say it's, it's just a little bit of water. It doesn't make a difference. But you know what? I bet it makes a difference to the fish who are looking for that cold pool in the summertime. And the, the people. Columbia. And the people of landscape there. Yes. You know, you need, you need water. And this is threatening to take more than their fair share. And the, you know, right. the, the bill is good because it lets... Um, modest amounts of water be taken by local businesses and, and local Correct. efforts, but not that the big, you know, slurpers of America coming in there. Correct. So, Deanna, we're out of time, but thank you so much for oh, uh, you're talking so with welcome. us about this. Thank you for taking notice and and helping us spread the word, because yes. it's not just about us. You know, there's so many other towns. We talked about Freiburg, but you know, there's. Cumbletown, yeah, yeah. Pennsylvania, and Macosta, Michigan, and, and people Hope, should go British to Columbia. Cascade Lock, Oregon, is a, a great search term for Facebook for Deanna's Facebook page. If you just do Deanna Cascade Locks, you'll get there. Uh, it's really important that you join with us and communicate with us and get out and vote. Deanna, thanks a lot. Thank you so much. When we come back after this break, we're going to talk with Liz Stebbins about work she's been doing on the lobster industry and the lobsters of the Gulf of Maine. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI 
partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI Actions and Events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI Eco Steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. On a Cape Cod shore, 16 striped bass fish and a horseshoe crab were found dead, killed by a harmful algal bloom. The town blamed excessive lawn fertilizer for polluting the water. They restricted lawn fertilizing to once a year. The state overruled, mandating five times a year. Though the striped bass died on a Falmouth shore, fertilizer pollution is a national problem, clogging our waterways. If you believe in our rights to clean water and beaches, if you want to stop the killing of fish by excessive fertilizer, please join with us. Make a donation for responsible stewardship. Acting together, we can have clean beaches and more fish. Please visit www.donateforoceans.org. That is www.donate4oceans.org. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. Again, that's 1-866-472-5788. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hello. I am now with... I'm sitting with Liz Stebbins. Who, hi. Hi, Liz. Hi. Liz is our um, intern from uh, Harvard College, and um, you've been uh, doing some research on lobsters. Yeah. So I actually have been doing work on the lobster fishery in the Northeast for one of my classes. I'm working on like kind of a big research paper, so... I've been able to do a lot of research on the lobster fisheries here, which has been really interesting. So um, tell us about this uh, big old fishery of ours. Yeah, so, I mean, I kind of chose lobster there. I mean, I had read this book, Cod, by Mark Kurlansky, which is kind of was inspiration for it because it's such an interesting species, but I chose lobster because it's actually one of the biggest fisheries in the Northeast, um, which kind of encompasses a lot of different fisheries. So I thought that was pretty interesting that it wasn't even a fish, it was a lobster, but... <laughs> Um, I also thought it was really interesting because when I, I mean, I'm from the Southwest and here lobster is kind of like a cultural icon. There's like lobster rolls. There's, I mean, every time you go to like, I, when I drove up to Maine, there's all these big pictures of lobsters everywhere. And so I was kind of interested in that as well as just the history of it because I think there's a lot of, you know, I had also heard there's a lot of stories that go around about like, you know, how lobster became this kind of cultural delicacy rather than just, you know, I mean, it's kind of not, it's not a very attractive looking animal, but 
No, it's a big celebration food. People have lobster. Yeah, the lobster thing. Big. big thing, yeah. Yeah, so I thought that would be kind of an interesting topic to go into. It's actually a lot bigger than I originally thought. I don't think, I think my paper is probably going to be too long. <laughs> <laughs> so there are three sectors to the lobster industry. Yeah. Uh, it's pretty much here in the Northeast, like um, north of New York or something. Yeah, so I've been, in doing my research, I, I think the actual geographic, like geographical distribution of the lobster goes from kind of up into Canada all the way, this is the American lobster, that's the specific species I'm focusing on. There's the Caribbean lobster, there's the European lobster, the American lobster is Canada down to about, I mean, it's all on the Atlantic coast right around North Carolina. And there are three sectors that the Atlantic marine fisheries kind of focuses on regulating. And there's one in the Gulf of Maine. There's one in George's Bank, which is a little bit farther south off of that. And then there's one, which is just southern Cape Cod. So those are the three main ones. And, I mean, they're a little bit different. I think the reason they're separated is probably because there are different populations of lobsters there. But the Gulf of Maine is kind of a sea within a sea. It's kind of surrounded on the, on the side by banks, shallower areas. So it's kind of separated from the ocean. So it has kind of its own little ecosystem there. And the one south of... Cape Cod is a little shallower, and same with Georgia's Bank, they're shallower, and so they're just kind of three different areas. Right, and Cape Cod one is really, South Cape Cod, the waters are much hotter. Yeah, they're much hotter, and that's actually been causing some kind of issues, especially as the oceans warm. Um, the, the fishery off of the, off, off Cape Cod is actually doing a lot worse than the one in the Gulf of Maine. The Gulf of Maine has actually been seeing increases in their, in, in the abundance of lobster, which is just can be kind of misleading, I think, when people see that. They might think, that, oh, the lobster fishery is actually better. Like, we can fish more, but that's not exactly how it works, I don't think. And I also, you had been talking to someone about this before, about how, I mean, that combined with nutrient pollution and stuff like that has led to algae on the cages and stuff, which can be oh, an yeah. issue for that as well. That was Beth Casino, and she's going to talk with you. Yeah. Uh, Beth is the uh, president of the Massachusetts Lobsterman Association, and you can see her on a, you can listen to her on a former podcast on this station here, so yeah. go back for that, but uh, yeah, so we've got this difference between the Gulf of Maine to the north and hot water to the south. Yeah, and I think that kind of is going to be interesting to see how that affects it in the years to come, because, I mean, both places have this kind of cultural dependence, not dependency, but like this really rich history with it, and if it's if it shifts, that would be kind of interesting to see if it's all moving farther north. Yeah. Uh, the, the lobstering seems to be moving in the Gulf of Maine yeah. further east and north, but um, it, it doesn't mean that the southern one's going to come on the other side of Cape yeah. Cod or something. That, those are locked in. Those are separate ecosystems. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about um, some of the history behind this, about how lobsters became a, a favorite food for... Yeah. So, I mean, kind of now, it's like a lobster dinner is one of the, you know, the fancy things you can get. There's also, like, lobster bakes. Actually, one of my good friends at Bowdoin, they have a lobster bake at the beginning of every school year, which I was just kind of astounded at because it's pretty expensive to just get a whole lobster, but it wasn't always like that. Did what you I, go? I did not go. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's just for students, but... I um, have to get into a lobster bake. I know. I would like to go. Also, apparently McDonald's sells lobster rolls, which... They do. They do? Are they good? Canadian frozen lobster. Okay. It's not the same. They have a very inexpensive supplier. Yeah. Um, but it's better than no lobster. Yeah, I think so. 
Well, yeah. So, I mean, it wasn't always. I think from what what I've learned in my research is that it wasn't always like that. There's this kind of story which I've come across a lot of different times, and I don't. I haven't actually found a concrete source for it, but basically that like prisoners were fed lobster. It was such a common food. It was kind of like a trash food that like, prisoners would eat it, and indentured servants put it into their contracts that they would not be fed shellfish more than three times a week because they just were sick of it. <laughs> and in the, and also, like, Native Americans and when pilgrims first came, they used them as fertilizer or as bait for other fish because they were just kind of so disposable. They were so abundant, like, washing up on the beaches in two-foot piles, which is just kind of crazy to think about now because you could fish for, you know, however long you want. And they also used to be a lot bigger. And you can see that in the sources as well that just... I mean, it's just been this huge shift as they've been fished, but that actually ties back. So they were kind of trash food. They were kind of common. They were fed to the little kids. They were fed to the elderly. And um, somewhere around, I think, there's this kind of tying together of the rising popularity of lobster in bigger cities, which kind of led to it being seen as more of like a delicacy. And then also the rise of the canning industry made it a lot easier to market and sell lobster. So that's when the fishery really started to get overexploited because you can see, I mean, these documents I found have been proposing, like, have been proposing conservation and ways of protecting the fishery all the way back to, like, 1901 and stuff, which is kind of, I think, an anomaly when you get, when you start talking about right, fishery rates. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Very unusual. A lot of it's the same in the 70s. Yeah. But and lobsters it, are an exception. Yeah. It, this, I mean, it started for years. Interesting. It must be because of the canneries enabled you to preserve more lobster than you could eat. Yeah. Because it's very hard to keep lobster, unlike codfish and fish and stuff. Yeah. Um, you keep them live or you can them, basically. Yeah, and it's very hard. I mean, you can't just kill them and preserve it because they'll go bad. From what I've learned is that's why they have, like, the traps. That's why the technology of the lobster traps evolved because just piercing the shell is not going to keep that animal alive for very no, long. Yeah. No, that's right. A couple of years ago, they had um, a, um, the waters warmed up and in the Gulf of Maine, and the lobsters, they all molted two weeks early. Wow. So suddenly, they were catching all these soft lobsters. Yeah. And they couldn't ship them very far because they were soft. Because, so mm-hmm. they ended up wanting to can them, and the canneries were closed in New England, so our name, so they went to Canada, and Canadian said, hey, we're not taking your lobsters, we don't have to our thing. Yeah. So the canning was crucial for getting lobsters beyond the state of New yeah. England. Yeah, and that's when it really, I think, if it's being spread, then that's when demand will go up, so people will be fishing more and stuff like that. That's very interesting, though, because I think as the water's warmer, as like some of the chemistry of the oceans is changing in ways that we don't fully understand, it's gonna, it can have implications for that, and there might be more stories like that. Exactly. We just have to be ready for changes and yeah. how to be adapted to them. And uh, so we see the price for lobsters fluctuate yeah. lately. Uh, of course, the summer it's always expensive, but otherwise, yeah. one year they're practically giving them away because there's just so many. And, yeah. Uh, and it didn't seem to hurt the population because they were Gulf of Maine lobsters. Yeah. I also think that's kind of interesting because as a biology student, I'm very interested in talking about, like, their molting processes or, you know, how you know, the reproduction cycles. And I'm trying to, stories like that kind of make it, kind of connect both the biology and the history in a way that makes it easier to write stories, you know, stories rather than just, like, the lobster mold and grows new exoskeletons. <laughs> it's just a little bit more interesting because it's really connected to how we kind of interact with the animal itself. Well said. So, um, 
What's it been like doing your research on the American lobster? It's actually been really great. I wasn't exactly sure what I was getting myself into when I first started because I thought, I mean, our professor was like, okay, you want to choose a topic that's pretty narrow because, I mean, for me, I thought an 18-page paper was like the longest thing. It's like a book. So I was like, I, I mean, I'll choose a pretty big topic, but once you actually get into it, there are just so many different aspects. There's, like, you can look at historical landings that people have from like from like, a century ago. You can look at those documents, like I was mentioning, that people are kind of wrote it, writing and proposing different ways for conserving the lobster, which is pretty interesting. I mean, there's that essay, Consider the Lobster, which I've actually reread, which kind of brought it all back into the public focus, I think. But basically the most interesting thing is actually being able to talk to people who are kind of in the industry itself. You connected me with Beth, who I'm kind of still talking to, trying to get some, you know, kind of live ideas on how the how the fishery is doing. And then I also am talking to someone who is kind of really involved in the fishery in the Gulf of Maine. And so trying to compare those two kind of like really like live kind of changes and how people actually out there fishing are experiencing them can really helps connect like those kind of historical documents or like stories of like, you know, the indentured servants putting it in their contract with like the actual abundance and management of the lobsters today. That's right. These people are really right there in the resource. Yeah. And so Richard Nelson, who you're going to talk to up in Maine, mm-hmm. he's been putting uh, recording thermometers on his traps. And so he's getting data about changing of temperature or monitoring temperature fluctuations. Yeah. You know, what cool kind of on-the-ground truthing and information yeah. about this changing ecology. Like real data, yeah, and I think that's what you're saying. It's not just scientific. It's not just, you know, some science papers that I'm finding online in the journal. It's like this is their livelihood, and it's just so, it's just really cool to see those two things connect. And, yeah, it's just a lot more interesting and alive than reading something on my screen or something. Yeah, we had a report. Um, I just forgot the name of Nick and uh, Rebecca's group. Uh, they were looking at the, the main industry uh, being regulated and part of the national ocean planning process. And they, they learned from fishermen that they are catching more and more lobsters on muddy bottom. Normally, lobsters are sandy, gravel, boulder reefs, but it's hard to track that. Mm-hmm. Um, but that they are finding them on these muddy bottoms, so the, the lobsters are shifting their patterns. And uh, fish lobsters just have to keep up with that. And yeah. What's where and, and move it around. Yeah, and I think that's also something to be. I mean, something that I have to be careful with in my research. In my research, is that I can find a document that was released by the Fisheries Commission, and the it might just not be the same. Like the different regulations they have just might change because, you know, the population and the behavior are actually shifting with the changes. So, well, it's also complicated because the fishermen, Nick and Rebecca, were saying that there's a big lobster fishery off Kennebunk, Maine, and if you talk to the Kennebunk, Maine fishermen, they'll say one thing. But most of the fishermen who are fishing the resource off Kennebuck, Maine, are coming from further north, like Casca Bay or Portland, down there. And so yeah. you think you're talking to the local yokel, yeah. but it turns out that, no, someone else is coming, you know. Yeah. So it's just a complicated, wonderfully, deliciously complex, just like yeah. the ocean ecosystem. We don't know all the connections. Yeah. Things. And that's why it's such, a, such an interesting topic. And I just want to read all these things so in-depth, but it's kind of hard because you know, you're trying to pick out the most important nuggets of information, but all of them seem equally important and equally interesting. <laughs> well, the great literature. Yeah. And thanks for taking all this time to, to yeah. talk about um, the lobster work. And 
this comes back to your work with us at the Ocean River Institute, which yeah. is trying to reduce the amount of harmful algal blooms that are tangling up these nets. Yeah. And uh, what we want to do is have every town in Massachusetts, there's 351 of them, and we'd like them all to call on the governor and say, permit us to fertilize our lawns once a year instead of five times a year. The science has found that over-fertilizing by agriculture, 100%, but by lawns, it's 500%. So if we could just reduce it, that's an 80% reduction on phosphates and nitrogen going into our waterways. Yeah. So we're out of time here, but um, I want to thank you for, for talking with us. Yeah, thank and you for letting me on here. And I really want to encourage everybody to uh, go to www.oceanriver.org and hit podcast hear another podcast or two yeah. with Liz on it and uh, sign on to our harmful algal bloom uh, petitions and so forth and sign up for free e-alerts so you can find out what's going on and yeah, definitely. What, what Liz is up to these days. Yeah. Thank you. Great. Yeah. Well, that's it for another episode of Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Until next time, thanks for listening. Please take care of yourself and take care of the planet. Thanks again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Thursday at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll talk again then. Yeah.